The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. If you have your your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, we're going to be in a number of different passages today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 and 16 a little bit. We will be in John chapter 15. We'll be in Acts chapter 2 a little bit as well. It's all on your outlines, but the, the key passages this morning will be Mark 15, 16 and John chapter 15. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to basically be preaching two sermons today, hopefully two short ones that we can mash together into one, because we're talking about two things today. One, the the fact of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the grave. And then we're going to talk about what that means for life now. And to understand that, we'll be going back to some things he said prior to his crucifixion in John chapter 15. Last week, if you were here, you know that we talked about the greatest news the world has ever known. That when we were dead in sin, dead in sin and trespasses, Jesus Christ came to our rescue out of amazing love for you. Jesus died for us on a cross. But today we're going to see what happens next, namely resurrection. The story doesn't end on a cross. We're going to see not only that Jesus rose from the grave, but how that affects our life here and now. Yes, we look look forward to eternal life. We look forward to this, this eternal satisfying life with Christ. But here on this earth, with the life we have left to live, here on this earth, God has given us some words that affect the way that we live in the here and now. If you look at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 42, just to reset the context here, it says this, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so the sun is beginning to set, the the cross is there, and Jesus is still hanging on the cross. The life has left his body. He is there dead on that cross. And the sun is beginning to set, the Sabbath is beginning, so everyone, all the Jewish people would be taking this day of rest according to their law. They would be trying to wrap up everything they could prior to this day in which they'd be unable to do anything else. It says that is the day before the Sabbath. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. In other passages, we see that Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Sanhedrin. He did not consent to the way the mob treated Jesus. He did not consent to to the trial and the execution of Jesus. But it says that he was a disciple privately for fear of the Jews. And so now here, seeing Jesus on the cross, seeing the, the sun begin to set on this day before this high Sabbath, he determines, he takes courage, and he goes and he reveals himself to the governor that he is, in fact, a disciple of Jesus And it says, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, remember this this soldier standing at the foot of the cross that says, surely this man was the son of God. Pilate summons the centurion and he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and it says in in John's gospel that Nicodemus joins him in this effort, and taking him down, they they embalm him as quickly as they can. It says they wrap him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, a tomb belonging to Joseph, nearby to the place where Christ was crucified. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And here now, watching from a distance, some of the the women that were weeping and, and mourning at the crucifixion of Jesus, they see now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where they laid him. Jesus 
Over the coming hours, he will lay dead in a cold, dark tomb since Friday evening. I don't know what was going on with the disciples or, or, or the followers of Jesus during this time. I have no doubt that they were spending, shedding many tears and living in fear that perhaps they too would suffer similar fate as close followers of Jesus. But early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, a forgiven sinner who's, who's been changed forever dramatically by meeting Jesus and two other women, they get up early in the morning and they go to the tomb where Jesus is buried. This is chapter 16, starting in verse one. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? No doubt they've been crying, they've been spending all of their energy in, in mourning and weeping, but they just have to now go and pay respects to their Lord and King who has been killed. They, they wanna dignify him with a, a proper burial, with proper preparation for his burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had, had done their best, but in this rush before sundown on this high Sabbath day, they hurriedly embalmed and wrapped and enclosed Jesus within the stone tomb. So these women, they get up as early as they can to go and to tend to the body of their Lord. But as they walk through the garden, picture it, the grass covered in dew, the, the sun beginning to slowly rise, they, they look about them and Mary begins to see that something has happened. There are cracks in boulders, there are trees laying down, something dramatic has happened in that garden as if a great earthquake has taken place. Then looking ahead, she sees something, Mary sees something that makes her heart absolutely sink. It says in looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Someone has opened Jesus' tomb. Now, if you don't know the end of the story, I can imagine what Mary and Salome and the other Mary were thinking in this moment, physically sick to their stomachs. Someone has taken the body of the Lord. His tragic death has gone from bad to worse as his grave has been desecrated. It says then, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. Yeah, no kidding, that would be wild. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And listen to what they do in response to this. It says, and they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What John's gospel tells us is that Mary Magdalene, she goes sprinting back to where the disciples are hiding. She bangs on the door and she tells Peter and John what she's seen, that the tomb is empty, that somebody has taken the Lord. She doesn't yet understand what has taken place here or believe it. And she compels them to come and see that the tomb is empty to see that someone has stolen the body. So they sprint back to the garden tomb. John outruns Peter because he loves to tell us he's much faster than Peter and he gets there first, but he can't even bring himself to look inside. So Peter, the, the leader that Jesus has appointed of this group, he takes courage, he steps inside the tomb and he confirms that yes, it is in fact empty. The body of Jesus is gone. And so in confusion, in fear and sorrow, they walk back to their lodging. They lock the door and they wait for what's next. But they leave Mary who sits outside the garden tomb, trembling and weeping in the garden. 
saying aloud through her tears, where have they taken my Lord? Where have they taken my Lord? And as she's crying, as her vision is clouded by the tears in her eyes, she senses that someone is there standing by her. Someone is there with her in the garden. And so in desperation, as she cries out to this individual, where have they taken his body? Where have they taken Jesus? And with one word, everything changes. She hears her own name, Mary. Mary. And immediately she recognizes this is not the gardener, this is Jesus. Jesus is alive. And, and after seeing him, after he take, tells her not to weep, Mary runs with everything she has back to the house where the disciples have been hiding. She bursts through the door and through heavy breath, she utters two words that change absolutely everything. He's alive. He is risen. He is risen and that changes everything. At first they don't believe her. They think she's hallucinating. They think she's confused. But over the next 40 days, his disciples, in fact, that evening they see him. He appears to them as they're gathered together the evening of the res resurrection. And this is no resuscitation. After everything Jesus went through last week, we, we uh, describe what he went through in this trial, in this torture, and in his execution on that cross. This is not a resuscitation. This is not him just, just limping out of a tomb. No, he is standing before them strong and showing them the wounds in his hands and feet after the brutality that he suffered. This is not a, a rumor either. This is not just some made-up story of a bunch of fanatics that want to see this Jesus thing continue. No, over the coming weeks, many see him alive. He walks with people. He eats with them. And at one time, he appears to over 500 people at once. And I personally have never heard of 500 people having the same hallucination. Over the following decades, this is, this is what we have to grapple with. It is a historical fact that tens of thousands will come to faith in Jesus because of the eyewitness testimony of people who saw Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. And these witnesses were so convinced of the fact of the resurrection that 10 out of the 12 disciples, excluding Judas and, and John, who died in exile, 10 out of the 12 disciples were eventually killed because of this radical testimony that the grave was empty that Jesus was in fact alive. 10 out of 12 die for that. Now, does that sound like people holding on to a hoax or does that sound like a group so committed to this belief that they hold their lives cheap? And they're not just willing to die because, uh, because of Jesus appearing to them alive. No, they're willing to die because of what it meant. It meant that everything that he said was true that he actually did have power over sin and death, power to forgive sins, power to bring healing and wholeness to people's lives, eternal life through belief in Christ. Because the grave is empty, we can trust his word. This is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This person that all of Christianity is based on, Jesus Christ, he's alive. And no other belief system makes a claim like that about its leader. Joseph Smith He's buried in a tomb in Illinois. Muhammad is buried in Medina in Saudi Arabia. Sun Myung Moon is buried in South Korea. The Buddha is cremated and his ashes scattered or buried in boxes throughout China. Moses and David are laid in tombs, but the tomb of Jesus is empty. Listen to how Peter puts this in Acts chapter 2. Living Jesus has ascended to heaven in front of many witnesses. We'll talk about that next week, is the great commission and, and the ascension of Jesus. 
But what happens in Acts chapter 2 is that after Jesus' ascension, this promise that he's given them in, in the Gospel of John, it comes to fruition. They're gathered together praying. Remember this, 120 believers in an upper room, and the Spirit of God falls upon them, and they begin speaking in other languages and praising a God and extolling the mighty works of God. And in that context, Peter steps out into the streets, and he begins to preach boldly to the crowds. And this is what he says. This is the implication of the resurrection. Let me see, where is this? In Acts chapter 2, let's start in verse 29. He steps out and Peter, who's been timid and hiding, he begins to preach boldly and he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, listen to this, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the main point right here, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this whom you crucified. Because he's alive, that, that means he's not just some dead person that we reminisce about in our Sunday services and in our small groups. He's so much more than that. Peter says that he is both Lord and Christ. Present tense, he is he is alive. He is a living Savior. And, and what it says is, as the crowds hear this, in response to this, I could read all of Acts chapter 2. It would be wonderful, but that's a different sermon. But, but in response to this, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And listen to this, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is, is risen, this forces a, a response from us. It demands a response. And here the response from Peter is quite clear. He says, if you believe this message, if you're cut to the heart by this message, today repent, turn, believe, and be baptized. And then he says, as you believe, you, just like what you're seeing here around you on this day of Pentecost, you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, now, I wonder how many of us relate to God primarily as our Father. Probably many of us do. Some relate to, to God primarily through the Son, Jesus. But, but what we see in Scripture is this mysterious third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus says this about this, this mysterious third person of the Trinity. He's, he is this very spirit of Christ himself. He tells his disciples something absolutely mind-blowing before he goes to the cross. He says, it is better for you in my ascension, it is better for you that I leave. Because if I leave, I will give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. How could that be possible? That it's better that Jesus goes. And that, yet he says this with full confidence, you will do even greater works than these. He's telling them that when they receive the Spirit, his Spirit, that Christians, you, believers, will, will be empowered in a way that, that you were not previously. These disciples are being told that, that they will have a helper, an advocate, a comforter, an empowerer, 
to strengthen and help and empower them for ministry, that the Holy Spirit of God will indwell them. Because he's resurrected, because he's ascended, he will not leave them alone. He will give them his spirit. And this is what we're talking about today. Not just resurrection, not just the fact of resurrection, but what does that mean now that we have the Holy Spirit of God? What does resurrection life look like? Amen. <laughs> Man, I thought we were going to need an interpretation there, but here we go. All right. How do we as believers grow in this resurrection life? What Jesus has given us by his spirit. How do we grow in this? It's by increasing in an understanding of the indwelling life of Christ. You, believer, have the spirit of Jesus Christ living within you. Do you know what that means? Do you sense that in your daily life? Do you commune with him in your hour-to-hour living? I think if, if we're honest, many of us have not a great sense of a real presence of the Spirit of God in our life. When we read about the disciples in Acts or, or different parts of the New Testament and compare our own spiritual lives to theirs, we inevitably find that we're not characteristic, characteristic of, of victory over sin patterns. We don't have the same kind of boldness and gospel proclamation. We're not seeing necessarily the same manifestations of spiritual gifts. We're not feeling that effectiveness in ministry. And so we experience the, the work of the Spirit to an extent in our lives. But I think for many of us, often it feels more like a, a little pilot light burning within us rather than, rather than a, a torch or a bonfire. And yet what the good news of Scripture tells us is that Jesus is alive. He's not far off. He has not left us to our own devices. And we can yield to him increasingly, give power and, and authority to Jesus more and more in our life as we surrender to him, as we repent of sin, as we turn to him, and as we allow the Spirit of God to take control of our life, this pilot light, it will burn up like a bonfire. He is alive. And by his Holy Spirit, he indwells every believer. And what that means is we're able to talk to him. We're able to commune with him. We're able to live in a relationship with him that he has bought for us. I think maybe last week some of you sensed that. As we reflected on the crucifixion and we saw all those scriptures about the love of God for us, some of you in that sensed his presence, sensed the reality of his love, realized that, that our God is not a God who is far off. He's not at a distance. He is near. That's what he desires for each one of us. Every day that we would walk, walk in close communion with him, that we would understand him as our loving father, that we would understand his nearness by his Holy Spirit, that we would commune with him moment by moment, day by day. Not only that we receive salvation from him, but that we, we commune in relationship with him. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, Jesus actually says a lot about this in his final evening with his disciples before the cross to know how to live in this resurrection life that we have. And so what I want to do, I told you I'm going to preach two sermons today, is I want to go to uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going backwards. We're going back to before the cross because it is in this context, in Jesus' final meal with his disciples, that John explains to us, not John, Jesus explains to his disciples what it means to live this life in him, this resurrection life. And so, so just to set this in context, he's in his final meal with his disciples. Judas has gone out from their company to betray him and they step out into the darkness after singing a hymn and they're walking toward a garden. And as they're walking, Jesus is giving them his, his final teaching. He's gonna pray with them. He's going to speak to them. And you can get the sense from John's writing here that he is hanging on every word. 
paying attention to absolutely everything that Jesus is saying. And as they walk towards the garden, as they're walking past trees and vines on their way to this place where Jesus will eventually pray and be betrayed, he opens up his mouth and he says to them this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Can everyone say nothing? Nothing. Some of you can't even say nothing. That's impressive. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's a lot in this passage. We could keep going with it. And uh, we're probably gonna preach out of John 15 a lot, even in the coming months and in the coming years. This is such a rich passage. But in these last words of instruction to Jesus, as he talks to his disciples about what life is going to look like after his ascension, what this resurrection life in the spirit is going to look like, he says to them, I am the true vine. And if you've ever been around farming communities, anyone grow up on farms? Anyone here? Yeah, a couple of you? Yes. So if you've been around viticulture or agriculture or any of these things, it's a super simple analogy. The closer we remain connected to Jesus in relationship. The closer we stay to him, the more our lives will bear healthy spiritual fruit. That's the spiritual fruit of other people coming to faith in Jesus Christ through you, through this life of multiplication and and people coming to faith. But it's also the fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five describes the fruit of the spirit as love, joy, peace. And doesn't that sound good? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. And when I read that list, I want that, don't you? Goodness in your life, gentleness, self-control, peace. This is, is the fruit of an abiding life in Christ. These are not the fruits either. Collectively, this is the produce of a life spent in intimate relationship with Jesus. But in this passage, Jesus also points out, unfortunately, that we have a choice to abide in other things. He says, abide in me. He's telling them that because there's a temptation to abide in other things. We have a choice to try to do it on our own, to live life apart from him in our own strength, disconnected from him. But Galatians 5 also describes the fruit of a branch rooted in the wrong vine. And and listen to this list. It says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Feels dark, doesn't it? And here we have this this tension, we have this decision. He says, abide in me and your life will bear this fruit of goodness or this fruit of darkness. So the question facing us this morning is simple. 
Is your life outside of Sundays producing fruit that is evident of a life of abiding in Christ or not? If you're honest, is your heart producing the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh? In John 15, Jesus points out three categories of branches, three categories of people that are, that are uh, either disconnected from the vine, those that are being pruned, or those that are bearing much fruit. And I just wanna talk about each one of these briefly so we understand what this, this resurrection life looks like. First, there are those that are disconnected from the vine. It, it says this, Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Does anyone think that sounds scary? I do. But what he's describing here is a process that's actually very common in, in agrarian communities. Throughout the harvest, the, the vine dressers and orchard workers, they gather up all the dead branches, they gather all the branches that are diseased, and they'll have a massive uh, bonfire, like a controlled burn for all these branches that are no longer connected to the vine and had withered and died. Each of my children, at some point in their life, they get really into plants, really into fruit and all this kind of stuff. And, and so uh, this past spring, it was my daughter Abigail, who's four years old now. She got really into this. And so what they will do is they'll dig in the garden and, the, and they'll plant seeds and flowers and they'll overwater what they planted pretty much every day. But what I've noticed is that with Abigail, when she was planting, she would get impatient with the slow growth of the flowers. And so what she would do is she would pick healthy flowers from other bushes and then she'd plant them in the dirt. And let me tell you, it looks great for about one day, but then what do you think happens? Wow, it'd be light. What do you think happens after that? It withers and it dies, right? They all wither and die because they're not connected to the source of life. And what is true of fruit and flowers, according to Jesus, is true of people. Apart from relationship with him, our life produces nothing at least nothing of, of lasting impact, nothing of eternal significance. Those who do not produce fruit, also worse than that is those who do not produce fruit, it says will be separated from the vine eternally. And I don't wanna dwell on this because this is a, a heavy topic, but I, I think when we think about concepts like hell and separation from God and, and, and judgment and all these things, we, we wanna shy away from it, but Jesus didn't. He didn't shy away from the weight and the reality of, of what was at stake. And I think it's tempting in this though to think that God must be cruel God must be cruel to cut people off like this, but I think the reality is, is something far different. I want you to think about the disciples that Jesus is addressing. Who is the one that best fits the description of being disconnected from the vine? What do you think? Judas, right, right. But what we see and what Tyler preached on just a couple weeks ago is that in the final hours of his life, it's that, it's that Judas, by his continual choices, was not connected to the vine. I find this mind-blowing, but Jesus loved Judas deeply. He spent three years of his life every day with Judas. He entrusted Judas with his money. He taught Judas how to pray. He performed miracles in front of Ju Judas and invited Judas to do the same as he sent them out two by two. He washed Judas's feet and he sat directly next to Judas at his final meal. So familiar were Jesus and Judas that the way they greet each other is with a kiss. Wrap your mind around that. Judas, though loved by the vine, though pursued by the living God, chose to abide in what he loved most. He chose to abide in wealth and insecurity. He, he rejected the true vine. And despite Jesus pursuing him with love for three years, Judas chooses rebellion, separation. 
And I think the heart of Jesus towards Judas is the same heart toward all of us. He loves us, and yet somehow in a divine mystery, if though fully sovereign, out of love, he gives us a choice. He gives us a choice. Will we be rooted in him? Will we stay connected to him, or will we choose our own way? He loved us at the expense of his own life. He has paid it all, and so that means the ball is now in our court. I know that this week, many of you that are here, you've been around church a lot. Maybe your entire life, you've gone to church week after week, but there are some here this morning that despite that, or maybe that haven't been around a long time, that are not yet believers, that are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. You've never given your life to Jesus. And I think through this example of Judas, through this this teaching on the vine, Jesus Christ this morning is inviting you once more to give your life to him, to give your life to him. And it's really simple. If you want this, admit your need of him. Believe in him as your only savior and choose to follow him. He's saying, live life with me. Abide in me. Stay connected with me and begin to live a life of purpose that bears eternal fruit. There are those that are disconnected from the vine. Secondly, there are those that are being pruned. How many of you do gardening? A lot of you did in in 2020 for like a month, right? And um, yeah, me too. But I I do some gardening myself. And what I'll tell you is that when you have a beautiful plant or a fruit tree, one of the best things you can do to help that plant to thrive and to grow, and and especially with a fruit tree, for it to bear more fruit the next harvest, is you prune off the dead buds and the parts of the tree that are diseased and lifeless. And so to do that, you actually take shears and you cut off parts of the plant. And and actually, the, the counterintuitive result is that there is more growth in the future. It's counterintuitive, but it's necessary in order to experience growth. And here's something I've learned about pruning, is that the branches that you choose to prune from the tree are the ones that are growing, growing inward. You want your plant to grow outward so that it gets maximum exposure to the sun, maximizes its, its nutrients. Isn't that interesting? The self-centered branches are the ones that need to be pruned. And so, Here, in this counterintuitive process, you actually cut off these things that are pointed inward, these things that are dead and lifeless in order to experience more growth. Some of you this morning are going through a period of pruning right now. Your life is full of challenges, doubts, hardship, but the hope of Scripture is that God is using even these present difficulties in your life to shape you, to tend to you, so that you can begin to bear more fruit. And in in the midst of your pruning, as you feel like you're doing your best to abide in relationship with Jesus and you're still just getting crushed, to you I would say this morning, I believe God is simply saying to you, hang in there. Take heart. I know pruning is not what you want to go through right now. Nobody wants to go through pruning, but but to have a life that bears fruit, it is worth it. And when you prune a branch from the tree, in some ways it, it hurts the tree, but it doesn't harm it. In the midst of, of the storm that you're going through, as life feels overwhelming, as, as you don't know what to do, as, as the things we put our security in begin to disappear or unwelcome change or challenge comes our way, remember that God is not punishing you, but he may be pruning you. It may hurt, but you will not be harmed. You can trust him. In the midst of your pruning, you can trust that as a loving vine dresser, he wants you to thrive. He loves you. And so what does pruning look like? It, it may be... It, teaching you to trust him in a certain area of your life where you just don't, where you don't want to do it his way, like a relationship or in your family. Pruning may be removing a sin habit, 
something that you've begun to cling on to as your place of abiding rather than abiding in Christ. It may be removing a distraction that is keeping you from the purpose that the Lord has for you. Pruning may be taking away certain friendships and relationships that are hindering your growth in Christ. Pruning hurts, but it is God's loving heart toward us to prune us so that we may bear fruit. And you may say, Mark, I am bearing fruit. I don't need to be pruned. But the truth of Jesus' claim here is that if Jesus Christ and your abiding relationship with him is not the source of that fruit, if you're just producing it in your own strength, doing a lot of really good ministry out there in your own energy and strength apart from abiding in the vine, then it's no better than plastic fruit duct taped to a tree branch. You may do a lot and look like you're doing a lot for God, but the fruit, it just won't taste right. And the mistake that's so easy to make is to mistake busyness for fruitfulness. Busyness for fruitfulness. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. I'd say especially for those that are in ministry, you need to hear this. God may be wanting to prune your schedule, your commitments, all these things that are good things, not necessarily bad things, but things that prevent you from bearing spiritual fruit, things that prevent you from abiding in him. Listen, listen to me. If you are too busy to abide, your life needs pruning. If you're too busy to abide, your life needs needs pruning. And so we have a choice, as scary as it is, to invite pruning. We can either passively be pruned. We can wait for life to get really difficult. We we can, for example, we can choose to rest and to spend time with the Lord, or we can wait until we're knocked down by life and forced to rest. Pruning is difficult, but we can either passively be pruned or we can participate in the pruning. And when when it comes to pruning or any kind of spiritual growth for that matter, you will only grow at the rate of your obedience. You will grow at the rate of your obedience. Will you respond to the conviction of the Lord? Will you participate in the pruning? There are things in our lives right now, I know throughout this room, there are things in our lives right now that we know we are are living in rebellion against God that we are not submitting to God. We're saying no. And that might be a good thing. I think he's leading us into and we're saying no. Or it might be something that we know needs to go. And we can participate in the pruning, but we will grow at the rate of our obedience. The last category of people here in the scripture are those that are bearing much fruit, those that are abiding. So how do we abide? How do we apply this? I actually wanna invite you to apply this. This is not that big of a gathering here in this room. I wonder, what are some of the things that we can do, church, as individuals in our lives to abide in the vine? What are some of the things that scripture reveals to us? I wonder, would anyone have the courage to, to shout something out? What do we do to abide? Someone say worship? Yeah. Yeah, I think praise, we've, we've talked about that quite a bit. Praise has this power to transform our thinking, to reset our minds on, on that which matters. And, and it's not only something that we give to God, but it's something that he's given to us to change and transform us. What else? Share the gospel. Yeah, I love uh, Philemon verse six, at least in some older translations of it, it says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. It's amazing how when we actually open up our our mouths to share the gospel, to bear the fruit of others coming to faith in Christ, how that strengthens us, edifies us, how that draws us into intimacy with the Lord. What else? What's that? Having and obeying his word. Listen, we cannot abide in him apart from his word. And he has given this word to us, certainly. 
This is a, a way to abide, is to spend time daily in his word. I know that's hard. And for some of us, it may just mean starting with reading a chapter of scripture a day. Just some time spent with him, intentionally carved out for him to have his word and to read his word and to respond to his word through obedience. What else? Anything else? <laughs> Prayer. Yeah, that's a pretty obvious one, right? Prayer. Did you know you can speak to God? He listens. He responds to us. It's amazing. Prayer, certainly. Moises, what was that? Community. Communion. Yeah, he's given us this, this sacrament, this ordinance of, of remembrance, reflection, response to God. He's given us communion, this taking of the bread and the wine where we can draw closer to him. Certainly communion. What else? Spending time with him. Amen. Did someone say rust or rest? Rest. Rest. Yeah. Yeah. Serving. Resting. Solitude. Not isolation, that's not what I'm talking about. Solitude, getting away and actually being alone with the Lord. Fellowship. What else? Surrendering. Surrendering. Yeah, that's it. Letting go. Turning your life over to him. Letting your heart say yes to the Lord. Community. We are not made to do this life alone. We need each other desperately. If you're on your own right now, if you're disconnected from the body of Christ, then you are in all likelihood in danger of being disconnected from the vine in some sense. We need each other. What else? Repent. Repent. Turn from sin. He's full of grace towards you. I hope you look up and you see behind me the cross right there, representing what Christ was willing to pay to restore us to relationship with him. How about this one? There's some things we need to stop doing. Like, how about we stop abiding in these? You know? Instruction in scripture is be still and know. And I think for so often for me is be still and scroll, right? <laughs> we spend about an hour and a half every couple weeks these days being in church together in America. But we spend over four hours a day just looking at our phones. Speaking to myself right there. Is there anything else? Here's what I want you to, to just leave with. Leave with this thought. These are all really good answers. These are all things that we should do, should do. We ought to do this, we ought to do that. And I want you to know that God is not primarily concerned with your religion. He wants relationship with you. He's inviting us to abide with him because he loves us. And he delights when we spend time with him. He is not after your behavior nearly as much as your abiding. All we have to do is stay connected to him and he does the transforming work. He uh, brings forth righteousness and goodness and fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. He gives us those things in abundance. This is an invitation to a relationship because he wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to, to, to walk in this resurrection, this eternal life that we have in him. It's not just something that is for us after we die. It's something that we have here and now. And his promise is that we have, as we abide in him, we increasingly will bear this kind of fruit. Mark, I have no idea what that looks like. I don't even know where to start. It starts with simply asking him. You have no concept of relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, ask him. Say, I want the spiritual life. I want to abide in you. Lord, have your way in me. And actually, we're gonna do that right now. That's what we're going to do is just pray. And we're going to ask the Lord for this.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for each person here that you would stir us to actually be able to say with genuine faith, God, I want you. Have all of me for all of you. Lord, fill this church, each individual here, fill us with your spirit to do your work. We desire this spiritual life. We desire this fruitful life of abiding in the vine. God, there's some of us here this morning who just feel worn out, dried up, disconnected, and I pray that you would be gracious towards us in our weakness, and I thank you that you are. I pray that today we would, we would reconnect to you, the vine, that we would abide in you. And Lord, I pray that as we do, you would allow us to bear much fruit for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, would you please stand and let's sing.